hello. Uh, well, um, last time I talked, it was um, it was about a month ago, and I talked about um, various things. But one of the things I talked about was kind of an interplay of seeming opposites. Um, I talked about suffering and joy, among other seeming opposites. And I'm going to uh, keep going um, be with that and, and beyond that, um, because I found this really interesting article that I wanted to bring forward. And then I wanted to share um, some um, other material about um, how to practice with things that feel like opposites, which is a big, big, big part of what we do in Buddhism. And I want to even go beyond into our emotional and physical well-being and the value of practicing with uh, seeming opposites. So there was a little uh, conversation last time that we had, um, you know, kind of especially with uh, joy and suffering, you know, one might wonder, especially in times like this, and it seems like these times are just going to continue now. This is our life. How can we be joyful in the face of the difficulty and the suffering of the world. Um, doesn't it, do, if we really, really, really feel and empathize with the suffering and pain of the world, isn't it kind of wrong to feel joy? I mean, doesn't it, doesn't it mean maybe that we're disrespecting the difficulties of the world if, if, if we're also cultivating joy? Um, and by the same token, um, you know, if one is a, a, a joy, a bliss bunny, and loves to stay in joy all the time, how do you um, hold yourself accountable to actually feeling the, the pain and the suffering of the world? So um, I had, we were talking a little bit about this last time, and, and then I, I found this interesting article. How many of you know the magazine called Yes Magazine? Raise your hand if you have seen Yes Magazine. Well, they sell it at um, Staff of Life, and I think it also is something that, you know, you can get online. It's a wonderful magazine. I love Yes Magazine because with all the bad news, you know, the media networks make money from our doom scrolling. You know that, don't you? That all the focus that we put on looking and focusing on the negative, that's what makes news. That's what we want to read about, the latest awful thing. And every time we, we, every second that we spend online looking at that stuff, they're making money off of us. So not to say that we shouldn't be informed. Obviously, we must be informed. But please be aware of where you put, where we put our precious attention, our precious mental capacity and our emotional capacity and where we focus the light of our awareness, because there's a lot of forces that just basically want us to focus on, on the difficulties and the negative. So anyhow, Yes Magazine always has really great articles about people all over the world doing awesome things. And uh, this particular uh, issue was the summer of 2022, and the theme of the magazine was pleasure. And there's this article, it's a, a little excerpt uh, by an author called Tracy McKell Lewis Giggets. Uh, and she is the author of a book called Black Joy, Stories of Resistance, Resilience, and Restoration. And I really, really love the opening of her article. And so I'm going to read it to you. It's a couple of paragraphs. She says, 
I have decided that 2020 was a great year for me. It was filled with so many tremendous professional and personal wins. Wait, scratch that. Actually, 2020 was a horrible year. It was filled with tragic losses and enormous amounts of rage and grief. I have to choose one or the other, right? Surely our capacity for joy and pleasure is contingent on how much sorrow and anger is held at any given moment, right? Actually, no, I don't think so. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It's always both and. I've been longing to talk about all the ways in which these last couple of years have been so much of a gift for me. And yet I struggle with holding that fact in the same space with all the ways these last couple of years have challenged the very core of who I am as a human being and the way I navigate this world as a black woman. And yet in writing my book, Black Joy, Stories of Resistance, Resilience and Restoration, I've learned that the ancestral legacy of our joy tells me I don't have to choose. And then she goes on to describe the ways that her ancestors, her great grandmother in particular, she's writing about how she understood the importance of allowing for and feeling the joy in her body and in her being, even under the incredibly difficult circumstances of her life. She says, Nanny knew how to call on the ever-present undercurrent of joy, even when happy moments were few and far between. It's why she rocked that pain out of her body in those church pews. It's why that great, great aunt would wind that pain out of her hips at the juke joint. My ancestors knew that they didn't have to go and find joy. They knew that joy is something that we're born with. It is our birthright. So I thought that was a, a rather interesting um, perspective, this act of uh, her nanny calling in joy with her body, um, with her dancing, with her movement. And she also talks about um, joy and grief as acts of rebellion the uh, allowing ourselves to fully feel and even to feel the two at the same time, to own our grief, to have it all the way, and then to own our joy and have it all the way. And she calls that an act of rebellion. And particularly in her experience as a black woman, she said, this transforms traumatic experiences into something distinctly ours. Operating from a place, this is again quoting her, of empathy and grace for myself in order to expand this container, this vessel, the spirit that holds the whole of my identity. So I want to talk about the seeming opposites. I'm one, I mean, I, I, I nod and I salute to the way that we talk about this in Zen, because we do all the time, the merging of difference and unity, form and emptiness, forward and backward step. I mean, you can't pretty much read Zen without reading about the encouragement to understand that these things that we think are opposites are actually both, um, they have their own distinct nature, but they're happening at the same time. But I've talked a lot about that from this seat, 
So I actually want to slide a little bit towards the, 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 the perspective that this author is, is suggesting that we look at of um, that by operating from a place of empathy and grace for ourselves in this way, it holds the whole of our identity. So I've been thinking about the inclusion of opposites as a way of being whole. And I don't know about you, but um, I know that sometimes in myself, um, I will get a, a desire or a, a wish or a yearning for something, and it'll seem to be the opposite of what I think I'm supposed to do. But if you really, really can open a, a wider uh, framework for everything that arises, sometimes those things that we're trying to push away and posit as different are actually calling us towards wholeness. It's some part of us that wants to wake up. It's some part of us that wants attention. And if we can um, welcome all of our parts in uh, to sit with us and sit with our kind compassionate mind and heart, we're, we're allowing ourselves to become more whole. You know, nature is this way. Uh, uh, nature is a, is a constant um, play of opposites. Think of all the opposites that are offered by nature all the time. The weather, the fog and the sun, the storms and the calm, the dark quietness of winter and the bright, bright um, light that we're in right now of summer, the high tide and the low tide waves, our very own bodies, the in-breath, the out-breath, the different desires that we have, the desire for motion, the desire for stillness, times of rest when our parasympathetic nervous system is activated, times of action when our sympathetic nervous system kicks in. This is actually the practice of equanimity. Upeksha, one of the Brahma Viharas. Um, sometimes I, I think when we um, think of equanimity, I know I've had people I've practiced with uh, or you know have conversations with describe this, you know, imagining that somehow equanimity means that everything, your problems are supposed to go away and you're supposed to be calm. But actually, equanimity is finding balance within the constant movement of our lives. Um, I had somebody describe this uh, to me recently that she is working on the, the, the vertical, calming herself in the, the vertical realm so that she can be present for the chaos of the horizontal realm. And I thought, oh, that's really beautiful. You know, it's kind of like this solid grounded uh, presence that we can have that's, that's very active, but that allows us to then be uh, present for the, the, the chaos of the horizontal realm. Um, I'm just looking up right now at a, a little uh, poster that I've had on my wall for a long time, Chinese proverb, when the root is deep, there is no reason to fear the wind. When the root is deep, there is no reason to fear the wind. 
Um, an example, um, th there's a teacher that I've been enjoying recently. The, uh, I, I know I've quoted from this book frequently, the Radiant Sutras, this teacher, Lauren Roach, she's a meditation teacher. And I've been enjoying his language a lot. And he, he gives the example of, you know, when a skater, think about someone who's skating, um, you know, maybe ice skating, uh, roller skating. And, you know, we understand that even when they're leaning over, their bodies are, are balanced. In fact, they, they're all of the organs of their body are calibrating to keep them from falling over. But they're, you know, if you look at them at any one particular time, they're leaning this way, they're leaning that way. Their bodies are sensing all these relationships, uh, the joints, the relationship of the joints, the weight, the acceleration, the angle of the knees, the tension of the legs, informing the skater about how to maintain balance. You could think of this as the swing of the opposites, all these things that seem to be opposite in us, these desires, these wishes, these emotions, these yearnings, these thoughts. It's just the swing of the opposites of living as whole and complex beings in a, in a, in a challenging time. Or like learning how to ride a bike. You know, we've all, most of us have learned how to do that. And you remember that feeling of finding our balance. We fall off, we fall off, but then something in us learns, oh, this, this is how, how we do it. So we think we have to choose one or the other. We have to freeze our reality, this one, that one, but actually reality is never frozen. It's always a dance. It's always the, the swinging of the opposites. Some people will say things like, um, you know, oh, I want to be, you know, enlightened, <laughs> but I keep falling into delusion. You know, I want to be calm, but I keep being agitated. I want to be kind, but I keep having these angry thoughts as if, you know, the arising of the opposite means you're somehow not the way you want to be. As if because you have thoughts in meditation, it means you can't meditate. Or as if because you have angry thoughts, it means that you're unkind. This is the binary dualistic mind trying to fixate reality on one frame or the other, which is contrary to the actual truth of life, which is that we're always leaning, moving, just like the skater, just like the surfer, just like the, the bicyclist. I mean, just take any of these examples. Um, you know, I want to be calm, but I'm, I'm at, my mind is agitated. I'm, I'm agitated. My emotions are agitated. So therefore I'm not a good meditator and I should just quit because I can't be calm because everybody knows meditators are calm all the time. Well, actually let's think of this as from this, this proposition I'm offering that maybe, um, maybe what we would call agitation is some part of us that's trying to be noticed or expressed. And so what if rather than suppressing it or avoiding it or just not even trying to sit because we feel like the fact of the agitation means that we can't, um, what if we actually turn towards what we're calling the agitation and let it whisper its truth to us? It might be some part of us that needs tending. You know, sometimes these parts of ourselves that need tending, that need attention, they show up in cranky ways. 
you know, just like a little kid, you know? So if we don't get put off by the cranky ways that this part of us is presenting itself, you know, maybe what we're being agitated by, maybe it's calling us to, um, you know, relax more, or maybe it's actually something we need to deal with. You know, if, if we keep having agitated thoughts about a particular person, well, maybe it would be wise to have a conversation with that person. Or maybe we're drinking too much coffee. Maybe we need to look at our, our input. Uh, or just noticing, wow, little voice in my head, you are really persistent, aren't you? Hey, you know. And often, once a part has been acknowledged, interestingly, it, it often kind of finds its place and settles down because it's not needing to try so hard to get our attention. So it might be a part of us that needs tending. Or, um, you know, another big one, I think that we grapple with in, in, in Buddhism um, because of some of our teachings is angry thoughts. You know, there's even uh, one of the translations of the ninth precept, which is don't be angry. You know, we, we don't say that at our, in our ceremony, we say our precept ceremony, we say uh, disciple of Buddha does not indulge in anger, but there's traditions where they say a disciple of Buddha is not angry. Now, I don't agree with that. Good luck. Really? Are you human? Don't be angry. Now, obviously don't hit people. Don't yell at people. Don't be mean to people, but anger itself is just an energy. It's just an energy. And then we attach meaning to this energy and we tend to use it as something then that we, you know, uh, we, we, we express a, maybe aggression against others or, or against ourself, you know, self, self anger. But if we can just allow it to be energy and just to be released, um, it actually also might be something that's giving us that needs tending. You know, sometimes anger is, uh, is wholesome. Maybe sometimes it's the need for a boundary. That's the wholesome aspect of anger. It's often a way that our, our self is saying, wait, no, no, no. That might be a really, really important thing to pay attention to. Or justice. Justice, you know, being angry about injustice. That can actually motivate us sometimes into action. So I think that the same thing with, with, with anger, if we contend this thing that seems like a seeming impediment, um, we can learn something. Our, our beloved recently departed teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, who always had such a lovely way of talking about these kinds of things. He said, I found this online um, when I was, I just Googled, you know, Buddhist views on anger. And he said, um, treat your anger with the utmost respect and tenderness, for it is no other than yourself. Do not suppress it. Simply be aware of it. Awareness is like the sun. And now he gets kind of, you know, lofty and flowery is, is, is his way. He says, awareness is like the sun. When it shines on things, they are transformed. <laughs> when you are aware that you are anger, angry, your anger is transformed. If you destroy anger, you destroy the Buddha. For Buddha and Mara are of the same essence. 
So not indulging in anger, that's our precept. It means that we take responsibility for it. We own it rather than making others into objects. We actually, and that we can put it out on, we actually own it and, and maybe have some intimacy. Oh, this is my emotional response. There are actually many studies that even show us that if we're not able to feel anger, it often shows up in the body and the mind as depression or as immunocompromised um, issues. Vic, uh, Gabor Mate has a whole book about this, When the Body Says No, where he, he talks about a lot of different ways that we, that people, we, you know, suppress our anger and it somatizes because it's energy. It needs to go somewhere. So, um, so here we are and um, kind of coming upon uh, seven o'clock. So wanting to just um, put in one more little piece here. Uh, these are, um, these are, this is language from, from uh, the meditation teacher, Lauren Roche, who talks about, um, you know, this dance of the seeming opposites. It's actually um, a, a word that uh, he and his uh, teaching partner and life partner came up with that they call it syzygy. And syzygy is a Greek word that means connection, means marriage. It's got the same root as yoga connected in Sanskrit. So um, when I was doing my uh, meditation, a teacher training with them, that is one of the things I've been doing on this rather extended sabbatical that I've, I've been um, engaging in is they actually did a, a practice with us where we would um, move with the seeming opposites. And, and I've done this with a few people when they're positing difficulty. I'll say, well, tell me about this. You know, oh, uh, this is my aspiration. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be calm, but then I get agitated and I don't know what to do because I'm agitated and then calm, agitation, <laughs> calm, agitation. So it's a way that you can move the energy of things that you might have a feeling of opposition, this choice or this choice. Oh my God, I don't know what to do. Should I do this or should I do this? And there's something about actually physically moving with and allowing this dance of life to be um, present in our in ourselves that is a way that makes space and uh, gives room for the wholeness of our being to come forward. Lauren says, the wisdom of the body-mind system is always attempting to create balance. I'm going to read that again. I think that's really good. The wisdom of the body-mind system is always attempting to create balance. This is the natural way, the natural urge of our wholesome selves. So when things are out of balance, it's actually our body trying to create balance. The edge of what we call out of balance is the very place where if we engage with it, we are beginning to establish becoming whole and creating balance. And meditation is a place, Lauren says, like a workshop. It's a little different than how we talk about 
in Zazen, but I don't think it's incompatible. Meditation is a place like a workshop where the wisdom instincts, your own evolutionary intelligence will be working on you to train your nerves to embrace a radical play of opposites in life. This is one of the opportunities that we have in this workshop of, of sitting still. Or in, in his tradition, you don't necessarily sit still. Maybe you meditate walking or lying down, but it's a, a, a time of being with ourselves, belonging in our minds, belonging in our bodies and welcoming and being open to whatever is happening so that our evolutionary intelligence helps us and works on with us to train our nerves to embrace a radical play of opposites in our life. So it's 7.02 and I'm imagining that there might be some things that you would like to talk about with regard to this, um, this teaching, these teachings. So um, there was one more thing I wanted to say, um, but I think what I'll do is wait and go ahead and let's do the announcements. And then those who wish to stay to go deeper into the material together, um, I, I, we can, can keep talking and I'll probably then bring in this other point at, at that time. So um, I'll go ahead and chant the vows and we'll have announcements. And then those that can stay, will continue um, the conversation. I'll, I have until 7.30, so I'm happy to, you know, get into talking about whatever it is that you find might be helpful with regard to this subject. So beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. <laughs>